You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. Today we're going to talk about barbecue and one brand's pandemic experience and what they did and what they did to help other restaurants through it, you know, and looking ahead as we're kind of uh, edging out of the pandemic, what's next for them. So with me today is Misha Majid, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Mighty Quinn's Barbecue, which is based out of New York City. So welcome, Misha. First, tell me a little bit about how you got into the restaurant and hospitality as a career. Sure. I, my, my backstory is maybe not not the traditional restaurant tour path. I started uh, down on, on Wall Street, uh, you know, first doing mergers and acquisitions with JP Morgan and then onto the hedge fund world. We opened up Mighty Quinn's in December of 2012. Myself, my, my partner and brother-in-law, Chris Cormos, and our chef and pit master, Hugh Mangum. You know, Chris and myself were basically the, the anchor investors in that restaurant, uh, both maintaining our existing jobs. And you know, in March of 2013, we received this glowing review on the cover of the New York Times dining section. And you know, the, whole, the whole world changed for us in terms of you know, Mighty Quinn's both as a, as a restaurant in New York City, but really putting barbecue on the map in Manhattan, which I don't think had been done before. Um, so basically use that as a stepping stone to try to figure out, you know, where this brand can go. And, you know, several years later, we, we both stepped away from what we were doing at the time to focus on, on Mighty Quinn's full time. Great. So tell me, um, you know, what Mighty Quinn's concept is, of you know, urban barbecue and what that means you know, and kind of, um, you know, talk a little bit about stuff that's on the menu. Um, and what what's the story behind the name? Sure. So, you know, urban barbecue is not necessarily something that we aspire to. I think we've kind of given, we've been given that title simply because we have barbecue restaurants in urban locations, but it's very much a traditional barbecue menu. Um, so, you know, we, we, we took the, the idea that, you know, we thought that there was a lack of great barbecue in the city, which was unusual because it was such a universally loved food category. And for us, you know, we, we wanted to make it in a fast casual setting. So if someone wanted to, you know, come and hang out for an hour and a half, they could do that. If they wanted to, you know, grab their food to go and, and leave, get out of there in five minutes, they could do that as well. And the fast casual format was really conducive to that. This was before, you know, everyone was trying to become, you know, the, the Chipotle of X, Y, and Z cuisine category. We just thought it really made sense for barbecue because all of the food is already cooked. It's already prepared, you know, briskets are smoked for almost a day. Ribs are in the pit for, you know, four or five hours. So all that work is done. So, you know, facilitating service on, on a fast casual line just made, made a ton of sense to us. And the menu is very streamlined. You know, we try to do a few things very well. So, you know, the on the entree side, you know, obviously meat focused, it's about, you know, six to eight items. We have about five or six side dishes. And then we always try to pair the menu with uh, a streamlined lineup of, of craft beers, you know, sodas, iced teas and lemonade. So relative to like other traditional barbecue restaurants where there's salads and burgers and a little bit of, uh, you know, menu creep, we tried to kind of just stay very rifle focused on, on barbecue and, and execute that well. And what's like the typical order for someone when they walk in? Uh, so brisket is, is the most popular uh, thing on the menu. Uh, so, you know, I would say it's probably brisket, 
spare ribs and burn ends are, are probably our, our three biggest sellers. Um, what do you order when you get there? Uh, I, I'm probably going to go straight to the, the the ribs and the chicken wings. You know, we, we do spicy chicken wings that are on the pit for about an hour before they get flash fried to get crisped up. They're phenomenal. So those those are my two go tos. And what's the story behind the name? So Quinn is actually Hugh's eldest son. Uh, so when when this brand was started, it was basically a pop up out in Brooklyn. We were doing you know two or three meets on on a mobile pit on the weekends, and you know Mighty Quinn's was you know was basically borrowed from from Hugh's son's name. And when we opened up the the flagship brick and mortar restaurant, we we kept the name because we had a little bit of a buzz going with not only the the local population in Brooklyn, but also like the the Manhattan foodies who would who would travel to Brooklyn to you know Smorgasburg and some of these outdoor markets on the weekend to kind of sample new things. So we knew that when we opened up in the city, we wanted to maintain um, the, the branding so people knew who we were. So who would you say is your competition, and what sets you apart from them? Sure, we don't actually think about competition necessarily just in the the vertical of barbecue. Um, we think we compete with convenience and and other fast casual chef driven food. In really in any category, um, we want to make sure that the way customers want to inter- interact with our brand suits their demand. So whether that's takeout, delivery, catering, ordering through an app, we want to make sure that we have that experience honed in and, and are available for however people want to dine. So when we think about kind of our competitive position, we want to make sure all those boxes are checked, which I think we have. Um, you know, obviously making great barbecue is the foundation of, of, of it all. But it's just kind of one one piece of the puzzle, um, you know, be, being available in that format in the right areas that that's how we compete. It's not necessarily like is, is are we near like another barbecue restaurant? What style of barbecue are we doing? Um, we really can compete for that kind of convenience meal and also people just seeking great barbecue. So who is your customer? Yeah, fortunately, the, the customer demographics from Mighty Quinn's is very diverse. Like if you just, you know, hung out. In, in one of the restaurants and, and watch the people walking in the door, you know, or like on a Saturday, you know, you'll see families coming in for dinner. Um, you know, as you get a little later in the evening, there'll be, there'll be couples, you know, bigger groups of younger people and really diverse um, on, on the ethnicity side. I think smoked meats touches so many different um, cuisine types that the flavor profile is familiar. It's not, it's not something that's very unique, um, you know, to one part of the world. So I think when you offer, um, you know, the way we do barbecue without, you know, without, you know, sugary sauces and it's really just purely pit smoked meat over nothing but, but you know, oak, apple and cherry wood. Those flavor profiles attracts a very broad demographic, which we love. So let's talk about what was going on for you before the pandemic. Where what were your plans? Where did you see the brand going um, at that time? Sure. So in 2018, we made the decision to uh, start franchising. To, to expand faster into areas that we necessarily didn't have the in- infrastructure to support, but we did want to get open in. So we were fortunate to sign, to have signed a few deals up. And, um, you know, obviously things were, were slowed down when COVID hit. You know, we also had our corporate expansion plans that were also slowed down. So when the pandemic hit, we really wanted to keep all the residential facing restaurants open. You know, obviously a lot of the business district locations had to close temporarily. Um, the stadiums, we, you know, we have a restaurant in Yankee Stadium and, and two in Madison Square Garden. You know, those were shut, obviously, as, as events um, were, were no longer open to the public. Um, so that was kind of our growth trajectory then. Now, as we sit kind of today, 
you know, we're more methodical about where we think, um, you know, restaurants should be open, how, how big they should be. You know, we think that this transition to remote working, while while it's not permanent, uh, permanent, will definitely have um, some some everlasting imprint on the way that people, you know, come into the city. It's, you know, I think gone are the days of the, you know, the nine to five, five day a week commuter. Um, people have realized, you know, the efficiencies and just the, the better quality of life of of not needing to do that every day. So I think that obviously has impacts to, you know, the restaurant economics, especially for these, you know, dense business districts like Midtown Manhattan. So, you know, we're focused on, you know, where corporate locations should be opened. And also we have our franchisees that are opened up. So the team is very focused on, on supporting them right now. And, you know, what is the franchisee experience like? You know, are, are you finding people are um, interested in working with you to, um, you know, to grow the brand? Yeah, I think now people who were thinking about getting into the restaurant business, you know, a few years back are faced today with, I think, brighter opportunities in regards to the availability of real estate. You know, rents are lower. Um, the overall competition, I think, is diminished because, you know, the obviously the unfortunate um, outcome of the pandemic has been closed restaurants. So. There's also a, a recognition that a lot has changed in the restaurant business and things like technology and, and brand support are, are so important that we're seeing more people gravitate towards the franchise space because they know they can basically do what they want to do, but do it in a turnkey fashion without having to figure out all the nuances of, of what goes into running a restaurant. So what are you looking for in a franchise partner? There's really two profiles that have reached out to us. You know, one is experienced restaurateurs who are oftentimes franchisees of other brands. Um, so, so that's one category. The second category are entrepreneurs who, you know, get vetted through our process. And for the ones that make it on the other side, you know, we have a very strong feeling that they will be supportive of the brand and execute um, in, in the same way that a, an experienced restaurateur would after completing our training program. So, you know, it's not a yes to everyone, obviously, because I think some people underappreciate, you know, the, the effort and commitment that goes into doing this successfully. But for those that, that we do see, you know, appreciate all, all the details and hard work that goes into it, you know, we, we're definitely open to, um, you know, opening up in new, in new regions with, with those folks. So what kind of locations are you looking at? And, you know, being what you just said about New York City and, and you know, remote work, um, you know, what, what kind of factors are you considering when you're looking at new locations? Yes, yeah, so we never try to be reactive to trends. We always try to obviously forecast where the market's going and be set up uh, accordingly before, before the trend actually meets reality. So what I mean by that is like, you know, a lot of franchise concepts will have, you know, real estate specifications that are, you know, fit within very narrow bands of square footage, where you need to be, you know, what kind of markets you need to be in. We acknowledge that there's an opportunity um, in, 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 in a variety of real estate footprints. So, you know, we can put a 2,000 square foot restaurant in a residential area with, you know, a, a 30 or 40 seat dining room that will do well. But we can also take the same menu and put it into, you know, a 700 square foot box in a, you know, commercial business district in more of like a dining concourse format. So once we are, you know, once we identify a market that, that we think pairs up well with what we're doing. Well, step two of that will be, okay, you know, wh where's the demand? What does it look like? And what kind of real estate do we need to, to successfully support that? 
And then, then we go down kind of the rabbit hole of looking at the analytics, you know, the demographics of the area to then figure out where, where the real estate should be. So let's talk about your pandemic experience and how, you know, what changes you put in place, um, you know, to, to survive. Um, so how did you do that pandemic pivot? Yeah, I think it's, I think the pandemic pivot is going to be looked back upon, you know, several years from now, once like the, the pain of this pandemic has subsided as, as a very valuable learning experience for us, you know, we streamlined our expense structure, um, pretty rapidly to stay afloat. And, you know, as part of that process, we learned that there was there was a cost to not maximizing the efficiency of everything we're doing. And it wasn't only just in payroll. There's many expenses that you incur that you don't necessarily write a check to pay for. So, you know, when like employees are idle or not challenged or, or frankly, just not working on productive tasks, there's like this almost invisible tax um, that's actually more expensive um, to bear than, than simply the salaries. You know, it's bad for turnover. It's bad for creating a culture where people, you know, strive to be innovative and just excellent in everything they do. It's bad for morale. So those costs weigh you down. You don't necessarily see it in, you know, your weekly P&L, but, but that, that, that's definitely a headwind to the business. And we, through streamlining, have kind of rid ourselves of, of that burden. And I think now we have, you know, our team is definitely smaller. Um, I think everyone is kind of more excited to tackle the day of, you know, all the various challenges that goes into running a restaurant. Um, and because of that, I think we're closer as a team, which is, which has been amazing. And, you know, you don't necessarily see that in, in, in the P and L, but you are able to kind of free up more resources and, and fortunately salaries can be higher in that scenario. So I think it's, it's one of those rare scenarios where it's really upside for, for everything involved in the organization. Yeah. Cultural cost in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So what were some things that you put in place, um, either changes to the menu, um, you know, to or, or more of a reliance on on technology, um, you know, to kind of get through? Sure. I mean, one example would be catering, right? I mean, catering hasn't fully come back yet, but, it, but it's starting to. You know, we used to have someone who just handled catering calls. Like we had a phone number to call. We were doing custom menus. It was a very kind of labor intensive process to execute a simple catering order. You know, fast forward to today, we've basically automated that whole process. You know, we have trays um, that people can pick on the website or they can tell us the number of people that are coming and just pick meats and sides and we'll take care of the rest. So we basically removed, you know, that, that human element out of it and just made a very streamlined, simple user interface for people to interact with place their orders, you know, all we need to know is, you know, when, where it has to go and what time it has to be there. Um, and it's, it's, it's simpler, I think, for the guest. And for us, it's much easier to execute. And that's all because it's, it's technology enabled now. So were you as um, pro on technology before the pandemic or um, or are you just using utilizing what you had more? No, I think going back to what I said before about not being reactive to like, you know, risk waking up in an environment where like your tech needed to be at a certain place and it wasn't. And now you're kind of trying to catch up from behind. Like we, we were early on and in, in acknowledging that the digital channel was going to be hugely important. Um, so we kind of set the foundation for that in our restaurants. And that fortunately enabled us to pivot very quickly. When the dining rooms closed, we were hundred percent digital and we weren't scrambling to figure out how to do that because all of that was in place. And I think COVID, you know, really, 
kind of wormholed us, you know, three years into the future, maybe two years into the future, we just kind of left ahead on that demand curve. And we're just, you know, we're, we're basically where we would have been if a few years from now had it not been for the pandemic in terms of the sales that are coming through digital channels. So I think the team did a great job in, in understanding where that trend was going. And I think we had the right um, systems in place to react to it. So I read something about SOAP. And something you were <laughs> so, doing with soap that I found interesting. So can you kind of explain what that is? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess not every day the barbecue restaurants are making soap. But so, you know, our big, like I told you before, our biggest seller is brisket. And that's one of the few cuts of meats that we have to do some butchering on before it goes, you know, gets seasoned and put in the pit. So we were throwing away like thousands of pounds of, of this fat and we were having trouble figuring out a way to just basically remove this from the landfills, you know, repurpose it for something. And, you know, everywhere we turned, whether it was a different food application um, or something for another industry, it just, we kept hitting these walls. And then, you know, we went down the path of, okay, what can you actually make from fat? And then, you know, beef tallow is, 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 is basically what comes up in that search as kind of the easiest thing you render down fat you turn it into tallow and then you can take that tallow and make you know great organic soap you know before the you know chemicalization of the soap industry if you you know rewind back to you know the 20s before like the industrial complex took over this 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 part this product category uh you know soap was you know either animal oils or plant-based oils um you know lye and a few other ingredients that were like a four or five ingredient product category so we kind of went back to that and we made soap out of you know the, the tallow that we rendered from our brisket fat lye um peppermint oil and we use uh on orga organic um coconut charcoal which which turns the soap black and also has great great properties um for, for cleaning so that that's how the soap thing came about um and you know we now sell it uh, on the website mainly um, but it is also available in, in one or two of the restaurants one of the other things that you did during the pandemic um was support other restaurants um so can you talk a, a little bit about what you did um you know to help others yeah well i think it was you know when we kind of looked at what how we should be pivoting the business um one of the things that jumps off the page is you know obviously every restaurant has this this kitchen infrastructure in place and you know while a storefront is branded you know as mighty quinn's you know that kitchen infrastructure is not necessarily a branded thing so you can basically monetize that real estate in a way that doesn't dilute what you're doing like on the mighty quinn side and use it for other things so and I think that we've seen a lot of this as you just hear about kind of ghost concepts popping up that are, you know, delivery only. Um, that's the path that we pursued. So um, Otto's Tacos, which was a four unit uh, restaurant brand in the city before before COVID made them cause them to close. We basically teamed up with Otto's and we're now we've relaunched them as a delivery only concept out of out of the Mighty Quinn's kitchens. And they were your neighbor. So it was really like a neighbor helping a neighbor. Yeah, it was very, it was very fortunate. Like, so their, their restaurant footprint, like married up very closely to the Mighty Quinn's footprint. Um, so when we turned on the first location on the Upper East Side, you know, we were in essence six blocks or seven blocks from their old Upper East Side location. So we had this built in customer base that was familiar with the brand, loved their tacos. Um, and, and, we're, and this is something that was, uh, much easier to execute than had we just decided to like, you know, for example, create a taco brand from scratch. So 
How has that been going? And is it something that you think you could expand upon in the future? Yeah, absolutely. We've been, I think, pleasantly surprised with, with the sales performance of, of autos. Right now, it is just in the one location. I think as the you know overall labor availability normalizes, um, probably as we get past some of these uh, federal support programs, uh, we'll be able to you know open this up in, in other locations. But we're, we are super excited about about bringing it to new areas, not only in Manhattan but potentially. Um, you know, other places that Mighty Quinn's, you know, either corporate or franchise locations also get open in. So how are things, you know, right now, as we're kind of, you know, getting into recovery? Um, are you noticing, you know, people are returning to in, you know, indoor dining? Um, are you seeing, uh, you know, any, any noticeable uh, decrease in the amount of delivery in favor of that? Or it's kind of, um, you know, at a, at a, you know, at, at the same pace? Yeah. So the mix has definitely uh, switched more towards, you know, in-store in dining versus delivery, um, but definitely not back to where it was prior to COVID. I think New York is is going to be a little bit of a laggard market relative to the recovery in other areas because, you know, we are very reliant on, you know, the tourist industry. Um, it is a commuter market and, and offices for the most part are still relatively empty. So until, you know, tourists come back and offices start filling up, which I think is probably going to be like an end of Q3 uh, event, I think we won't see the real impact in, until those two things um, switch back over. Um, but we are seeing that, you know, people are, are obviously more comfortable to go out to dine, to, you know, eat in restaurants. Um, you know, the, that whole, the, the worry aspect, the, the fear of, of, you know, being in, in a public place, I think is subsiding. And, and you're definitely seeing that in, in restaurant sales. So what's the immediate future for the brand um, and some of your long-term plans? Well, the immediate future, like I was saying before, you know, we're really focused on making sure that you know, franchisees who had signed up with us are you know, in a position to succeed. Um, so that goes into you know, not only you know, real estate design and build out, but also our training program, um, making sure that they're staffed up sufficiently. Um, so that that's kind of the most immediate focus. And I think over the longer term or maybe, you know, mid to longer term, we'll definitely be opportunistically looking um, to see if there's opportunities to, you know, take over some second generation restaurant spaces and, and open up more Mighty Quinn's uh, corporate restaurants. So how are things going? How are you doing? And, you know, what are some of the lessons that you learned during the pandemic that you think you'll carry with you? I mean, one of the biggest lessons was just talking about, you know, have, having that, you know, inefficient or, or, or too large of an infrastructure relative to the business that we have since right sized. I think that that's been huge. Um, you know, looking at everything that we've invested in relative to our commissary and our restaurants, being able to do new things with those. So an example would be, we're now selling our barbecue sauce in the grocery channel. Um, we've, you know, since, since the launch of that, I think we're currently in 50 doors. Um, and, and that's that, that's a cool growing business. So we'll, I think we'll continue to look for opportunities to have Mighty Quinn's, you know, be in front of more customers, maybe not necessarily in traditional restaurants, but maybe more in, you know, both uh, the grocery channel, but also, you know, stadium and, and event type venues. So let's talk about New York City. Um you know, Broadway is going to be coming back in September. So the, you know, the things that made the part of the character and the vibrancy of New York City are starting to return. Um, so how do you see the New York City restaurant uh, realm going uh, moving forward? 
I think it's going to continue to move into position of strength. I mean, even now, like we have this great spring weather, like it's very difficult to get a reservation, you know, indoors or outdoors. So I think people are definitely they're they're the the people who stayed in the city, you know, who, who didn't, you know, leave to either you know the Hamptons or upstate are back dining out and, and that's that's very apparent and i think we're still in that period where there's definitely fewer restaurants than there was before this so as the number of customers increases and, and the number of restaurants stays fixed i think that's going to be you know a boat that, that lifts all ships and, and restaurant sales should definitely continue to recover perfect thank you so much